Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. This year's Lighthouse Summer Youth Camp featured over 60 young writers, all hailing from various Denver schools, non-Denver schools, homeschooling programs, and anywhere else we could find cool kids who like to write. At the end of our week of writing, each young writer chose a piece to share with an audience of 150 listeners. These are their stories. We invite you to pause for a moment to help support this and future podcasts by getting out your cell phone and texting the word right now. That's W-R-I-T-E-N-O-W, no spaces, all lowercase, to 20222 to donate $5 to The Lighthouse. It's a simple two-step process. Text right now to the number 20. Two two two, and then text yes to confirm, and five dollars will be added to your mobile bill. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for supporting the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Thank you for coming. My name is Mike Henry. Um, I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. It's always my pleasure to welcome you to the final reading of the young. We change the name every year. The Young Writers Summer Camp. The Summer Young Writers... We're always constantly editing because we're writers. Um, So we have lots of kids today, so I'm going to be very quick. Um, How many of the the young writers, how many of you are new this year? Nice. As I was... Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, As I was saying to Marie, one of our instructors, or as she was saying, um, as, as we agreed that there's hope for the next generation because kids do care about writing and reading and expressing themselves creatively, so that's fantastic. Um, And I personally have, uh, I'm very excited this year because um, uh, I have two daughters, and I only had kids just so I could have them come to the writer's camp. And so um, my youngest is 10 this year, so she attended, and I think she did really well. I hope we'll see. For those of you who don't know about Lighthouse, we've been around for 14 years, um, and we're dedicated to teaching the craft of writing, to celebrating creativity, um, and to um, honor the value of literature in our lives and in our culture. So um, that's my little speech. Um, I'm done. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting your young, creative, talented kids. Um, They're amazing. I teach at the university. Um, I teach creative writing at the university occasionally. And um, your young writers are um, as good, if not better, than most adults. And they're usually better behaved, too, so that's fantastic. So thank you. Um, So now I'm just going to introduce Meg Nix, our youth program director. This is a big, puffy microphone. (laughs) Um, I'm Meg. I think most people know me. Um, Yeah, Mike is not um, exaggerating when he says that the young writers here are definitely on par or even more advanced, I think, than some adults. You guys just totally amaze me. Um, And I was a little worried being eight months pregnant, but this was like the most smooth sailing week (laughs) that I've had all summer. So thank you for being so good and well-behaved and an inspiration to me. Um, I wanted to just throw out a couple thanks before we get started. Um, 
to our instructors who are just fabulous and make this week so worthwhile. John O'Keefe, who's maybe upstairs directing traffic. We'll come back to him. Um, Josh Tyson, who's back there. Um, Josh has the tallest hair. (laughs) And he's a food and fashion writer and many other things. And thank you, Josh. And Marie Kaufman, who's back there, who is also terrific, who might have written her own hermit crab essay this week, if you want to ask her about it. Um, Kim O'Connor, who's our Southern Belle, our accented Sestina maker. Um, Joel Jacobson, who has the longest beard. (laughs) And he likes to put words in bowls. Um, And then our two interns, um, Katie Foster, who's a Lighthouse graduate, um, who, Katie was in the Lighthouse Young Writers Program for like probably five or six years and just contacted me and said, can I help all week? And she's been here all week just working with young writers. So she's, she's just great. Thank you for being here, Katie. And um, Camila, where's Camila? Camila is our intern from DU and she supplied all of the food this week. Yay, Camila. (laughs) Um, And I just have to say a couple words to um, Whole Foods Capitol Hill. They donated all the food this whole week, which was awesome for us. Um, And Einstein's Bagels, the Botanic Gardens, and King Supers. They were also our sponsors. So um, without further ado, I think everybody should hear everything that the young writers wrote this week. Um, Everything. We will be here till eight or nine, so get comfortable. Um, and John O'Keefe will just applaud when he enters the room. Um, Isabel Toby is our MC. She's been coming to Lighthouse for four, five years. A long time. Um, so she's going to be introducing each young writer. And I'd just like to applaud all the young writers in here for for what you do. It's, it's very different than coming to a sports camp, and I don't know if I'd be able to write every day, Monday through Friday, all day, um, but you guys make me want to. Maybe one day I will. So, applaud yourselves. All right, welcome all, and thanks for being here. Up first, we have Lindsay Beckerah. Okay, so this is an untitled poem. Um, Okay. Shadows crawl across the ocean. The wind howls as she ends lives of infant children. The sea roars with laughter as he destroys families huddled in the corner of their houses. Black covers hope. Breathing is impossible. He crashes against your body as he pulls you under. All you can taste is seawater. Air escapes your nostrils as you reach for air. None exists. You see a shadow crawl across the water. A sharp pang hits your neck as sharp teeth sink into your flesh and seep into your bone. You fall, but there is nothing to hit. You hear screams of your family as they are hit with blood and broken bones. The last bit of air is forced out of your lungs as you hold the gash in your neck. You feel your back pierced and all glows black. Salt water floods your lungs, making you cough up blood. All you hear is screams. All you taste is blood. And all you feel is seawater.
right. Up next is Emmy Dupree Henry. Okay, um, this is a hermit crab essay, and I chose the subject of shoes. Twinkle toes. My new shoes were lame. No one noticed. I wore them like it was my job. The gems on the toe guards, the holes for laces that were unfulfilled, the pink and black fabric strapped together with the white soles. The crunching of small rocks beneath my feet were fast as I ran from Michaela. When my best friend Megan was one of the many slaves of Michaela, the shoes walked me to the boys that hadn't yet been slaves to Michaela. She hated me for not being her friend or afraid of her. The boys, she hated them as well. I was the only girl that played tag with them. The shoes were now worn out. Sketchers. I had gotten the new shoes for my new school. They made me look an inch taller. They were great for running. I tried to look happy for school, put a forced smile on my face. The teachers seemed to scowl just by being there. Meeting Marisa and my other friends was the only good part. For tearing a workbook to shreds in rage, I had to go to the principal's office. I do not regret doing that. I look back on it with pride. High tops. I have new shoes. I mean, they look nice, but... I like the style of worn out. I was still in love with my Skechers, but these new shoes were actually kind of cool. They were not worn out, but they stood out. Maurice and I were acrobats on the swings at recess. No real bullies were at my new school, just aggravating divas. Summer was at least coming. I hated the fact I would be here for a long time. The teachers hated teaching. School hated itself. Flip-flops. I zoomed down a water slide. At the cool and refreshing bottom, I met Marisa. We started to do flips and headstands in the water. People liked to watch us. Summer was here, my chains were off. We ran around the pool, avoiding my pesty little sisters. It was summer. Up next is Sadie Fletcher. Um, this is a hermit crab essay as well. And it uh, has desserts in it. <laughs> Apple pie. He never really was mine, but everyone thought he was. The night before I met Nixon, my younger cousin Reagan and I talked about him, over apple pie, of course. Even though I didn't know him, I knew I would be riding him. Even before I met him, I knew he would be my favorite. Oh yeah, did I mention that Nixon's a horse? Cranesicle. I loved him. Ever since that first day, Nixon and I formed a special bond. There was Ellie, Licky, Steele, Marco, the list went on. But Nixon was always the first to come to the ever-so-slightly rusted gate when I came. Here's how our schedule went. 9.30, I arrived. 9.40, I caught Nixon. 9.50, I groomed him. This part took a while because he would always roll in the mud. 10.30, I rode Nixon. 11.20, I ate a creamsicle while Nixon ate an apple. Fortune cookie. 
Even though things may be dark, look ahead and you'll always find your way. Those were the exact words inside the fortune cookie. Two weeks later, I had to tell myself that same thing when I realized that Nixon was lame. Little did I know that I would never ride him again. Nixon moved to a retirement home a few weeks later, and I was stuck without a horse to ride and an empty place in my heart. Popsicle. I started to ride Lucky, a sweet horse that actually licked people. But he wasn't the same as Nixon. Now, I still ride Lucky, and though he's not quite the same as Nixon, I've learned to love him. Sometimes I eat a popsicle, mind you, not a creamsicle, in the pasture with Lucky, and it reminds me of Nixon. Next up is Tia Karkos. Okay, um, this is called Don't Count Your Trout, and it's a parable. Once upon a time, there was a well-known fisherman who owned a great deal of property, including a serene freshwater lake containing many fish. One day, the fisherman was in the local eatery when he spotted his friend. They began to talk, and soon the topic came to his work. I reel in six trout every morning, the fisherman boasted. Nar, that's crazy talk, his friend challenged. I challenge you to a fishing tournament, he said. His friend agreed and left with the promise to return at the lake tomorrow at 6 o'clock. The next morning at 6 o'clock sharp, the two friends were standing side by side at the edge of the lake. The bait... Oh, the next... I'm sorry. <laughs> they waited a little while, and then his friend's rod began to wiggle. I've got one, he struggled as he, to reel in the heavy fish. They tossed the fish in a cooler. My bait must be defective. I haven't caught a darn ding, the fisherman muttered. I've got another bite, his friend said ecstatically. I'm winning, I'm winning. The fisherman was enraged. Fool, I'm not even trying, he told his friend. But the fisherman learned his lesson and decided that next time he'd better not count his chickens before they hatched. Next up is Nikki Marcus. My Rose Poem. This exotic fresh beauty stands out to me because how its petals burst out with joy as if it just touched hope. As the sun splashes its rays onto this baby peach-colored rose, it gives me faith. Faith as in someone just put a blanket over your shoulders while telling you everything is going to be all right. Now, of course, this rose has flaws, but it seems as if it's speaking to me, saying, it doesn't matter what's on the outside, only on the inside. Up next is Cassidy Nix. I'm reading a parable we wrote at the scripture gardens and botanic gardens. Once there was a king who was very important and all his subjects loved him. One day he decided to set out in search of a burning bush which would produce a scroll that held the secret to immortality. The king was keen on learning this secret and had all his best soldiers and subjects search for it. 
One day, a man and his frail brother stumbled across a stump during a walk through a meadow. The bush was not burning anymore, and all that was left was the stump, and inside this stump was the scroll. The frail brother had trouble walking because as a child he had been worked like a mule and had broken his back and hadn't fully recovered. He was wise and knew what the stump really was. He told the proud man what he thought. The proud man, eager for the reward, ran to the king, leaving his frail brother to make his own way. The frail brother knew a shortcut and arrived soon after the proud man. The proud man did not want to share his reward, but agreed to let his frail brother join him, but planned on killing him later. They moved to the king's door, and when the king heard what they had and how they had come to claim the reward, the king asked them to wait until his royal guard called them in. This was to test their patience, for, as the frail brother knew, the king wanted to know they were worthy of the reward. The proud man waited, but after a few minutes he gave up, bursting into the room, although his brother warned him strongly against it. Enraged, the king took the scroll. Instead of rewarding the proud man, he sent him away with only a loaf of bread burnt on the bottom. Many minutes later, the frail brother came into the lavish throne room. He told the king the story and was rewarded with half the king's treasure and lived well. He asked the proud man to live with him, but the man's pride was injured and he refused, soon dying of starvation. Up next is Caleb Pan. The two, the two seagulls. This is a parable um, I also wrote at the Botanic Gardens. One day, two seagulls were flying over the sea. One was white, the other gray. The two were looking for fish. The sea was filled with hundreds and hundreds of different species of fish. Now, both seagulls saw two strange fish with stripes all over their bodies and long spines that lined up on both of their fins and backs. The white seagull noticed how all the other fish were avoiding them, but the gray seagull didn't notice. He dove right into the sea the second he saw it. The gray seagull grabbed hold of, the, of one of the strange fish with his beak, then flew back to the two seagulls' nest to devour his strange prize. The white seagull, however, was still hovering above the water, puzzled about the other striped, the other striped fish left. The first seagull thought, All the other fish are avoiding it, so it must be harmful. So the white seagull snatched a few sardines instead and flew back to the seagull's nest to the two seagulls' nest. When he got back, he saw the other seagull dead with his, with his fish half-eaten. The gray seagull, seagull died because the fish he had caught was a highly, highly poisonous lionfish. Moral, think before you act. Up, na- up next is Aiden Patrick. This is a poem I wrote um, at the pool at the Botanic Gardens. Pond Neighborhood. The pool is crawling with joy. It's a neighborhood of insects. Clusters of lily pads are apartments. Water bugs are taxis with an expensive fare. 
The gentle current pushes them in floating bamboo sculptures around the pond. The sculptures give bees free rides, and for spiders, they are hotels. The Pond Neighborhood. Up next is Stephanie Rold. Revenge, July 17th, 2009. Oh, by the way, this is fiction. (laughs) Have you ever wondered what it's like to love someone and to have them killed? Well, I'm definitely the person to ask if you have. My sweet little sister was murdered when she was only five years old. She was so adorable, and now I miss her so much. There is now a huge gaping hole in my heart. When I found out she was killed, I got so mad, lost my temper, and I swore to this day I would get my revenge on the murderer. And that is why I call this day revenge. Revenge, July 18th, 2009. Today, I met my crush. His name is Dylan, but I have to ignore him because devious plots and crushes don't go together. But it's really hard to ignore that. Anyway, I'm slowly getting closer to getting revenge on the murderer. Up next is Maya Scott. This is a poem that I wrote. It's called I the Swing. I was sitting in the shade of a great spruce tree. I was swimming in my sweat. Don't you feel bad for me? My chain handles are quite rusted. The swing's handles next to me are totally busted. Suddenly I hear an ear-splitting roar and turn to see children rushing out the front door. I'd leap to my feet if swings could jump with joy. Why, I'm the happiest little swing song toy. Next is Flannery Stevenson. This is a poem about four haikus about the seasons. Flowers all around, the smell of roses and leaves. Springtime is blooming. Birds chirp and bees buzz. The sun is shining brightly. All the trees have grown. Leaves fall from the trees. Squirrels go to hide in their homes. Leaves crackle and snap. Snow is falling down. Snowballs flying here and there. Winter time is here. Up next is Christian Wilson. The year is 2,906. All of Europe and... Wait... This is the prologue to a piece I call Criminal Society. Now the year is 2,906. All of Europe and Asia has been destroyed in a massive nuclear war. Global warming has shrunken continents significantly. Government has been overthrown and the evil Carmine crime family has taken over the world. Due to advances in science, drugs creating longevity, nanorobotics, conscious androids, and cyborgs are now a reality. Daniel Carruth was a con man and computer hacker, driven into obscurity by the rise of the Carmines. His hatred for the crime lords grew when a train crash orchestrated to kill an enemy of the Carmines, severely injured his brain, heart, and arms. 
Plastic surgery and biotechnology made him a half-human cyborg, supplying him with enhanced strength, reflexes, and the ability to communicate with machines. But now, a large electric shock can send him into a coma, and he is left useless to magnetism. The cyborg gathers information on the Carmine family by bribing leaders of the lower criminal world using counterfeit money. He then kills the criminals and adds the information to a file. Soon, Daniel Carrath will have enough information to try and overthrow the Carmine Empire. Up next is Caroline Bennett. Um, hi, I wrote a poem. It's called Waiting. She waits patiently, waiting for her life to begin, waiting forever. She waits forever because she must free herself. She must take her own life in her hands. She must learn to fly free, to free herself into the world, to make her own choices. She must learn to love, to learn to make a difference. She must change the world. She sees the whole world before her. She longs to run with the children, to laugh, to see beauty, to be happy. She never sees the, or she always sees the world from her looking glass, never escaping her hands. She realizes she has no one, she is alone. She wants to leave, to escape nothingness, to have someone, she wants to be free. But she is still stuck, unable to leave safety, unable to move. She waits patiently for a thousand years, she waits, waiting for a chance. But she won't get that chance because she won't get to take that risk because she chooses to wait now, to wait forever. Thank you. Up next is Madeline Bronson. Okay. I'm just going to read this off my phone. <laughs> about the uh, seven deadly sins. Verda and Midas walked hand in hand down East New York Avenue. Everything caught their eye. Verda spotted the new um, Mac collection in a woman's purse and was, about, was just about ready to trample her for applying the brushstroke so neat and beautifully. The jealousy boiled up inside of her until her hazel eyes turned as green as her insides. Midas stopped watching a man inside the liquor store swipe his credit card for the most expensive cognac in the store and turned to Verda. Midas put his hands over her eyes, closing her eyelids, and chanted soothing words. He waited until the Mac woman had hailed a taxi to remove his hands. Verda's eyes slowly turned hazel once more. Midas looked back at the liquor store wistfully. If only, he thought, but no, we have to stop this. Just because our ancestors were sent here from hell doesn't mean we can't go to heaven. Everybody has something they want, something they desire, especially Midas and Verda's friends, Desiree and Gloria. Desiree just wanted. He wanted everything he saw. He wanted money. He wanted power. He wanted respect. He just wanted. But he had Gloria. He never wanted to have what he had with Gloria with anybody else. Gloria was special. It's because they were made in pairs. Envy and greed, lust and pride, sloth and gluttony, and wrath. And wrath by itself. They can easily work off of each other 
in order to sin the world. But their generation is different. They are determined to rid the world of sins and earn their way to the pearly gates to talk with St. Peter and not be threatening him. This is what Desiree found his want. This is what Desiree focused his wanting on. And Gloria will be congratulated greatly when she makes it to heaven. Desiree slumps his arm over her shoulder and she smiles up at him. They make their way up the five flights of stairs to the little apartment they share, and she did feel proud. She knew she was not supposed to, but how could they? But they were in France. How could she help it? Gula shook Louis awake. Get up, Louis. I'm hungry. Louis groaned. Can't you get food yourself? Gula rolled her eyes. You're the only one who can drive, remember? Hurry, I'm hungry. Aren't we supposed to be getting rid of our sins? Well, you're certainly not helping your own. You haven't even gotten up yet. Louis Huff stood up, walked to the bathroom, and slammed the door. Happy? yelled Louis. Not until I get my food, she responded. Fifteen minutes of impatient silence later, Gula knocked on the bathroom door. No response. She went in and found Louis fast asleep in the bathtub. Louis, get up, she shouted into his ear. Louis sat up with a start and grumbled. Um... They sighed crankily, folded their arms, and walked out the door. Zorn stood at the Pulskirch Church in Frankfurt, Germany. Why did everybody else get a partner? At least Louis and Gula had somewhat easy sins to overcome, but wrath? It was so hard, and without a partner, impossible. He looked up at the church once more. He didn't care about getting into heaven. He didn't care about the others. He didn't care about this whole planet. He didn't need a partner. He could sin the world by himself. He turned his back on the Paul Skirch Church, eyes glowing red. Up next is Cassidy Cole. Oh, she's not here. Never mind. Up next is Anna Dempsey. Okay, so I'm reading like a third of a Sistina that I wrote. Um, Okay. The scent of blood was in the air, for this was a place of death. It was the place for normal schoolhouse fights, but it became something much more. It became a battlefield, a place for killing. The sky will always be dark, rainy, and cold. Too many people had cold hearts, and one can always hear the people's screams in the air. This place was my home. It was destroyed by killing, by death. I was just an orphan, as I will be evermore, and with nothing, a fight was worth everything. We were brought up to fight, not on purpose, but no one gave us love. This place is cold, as it will be evermore. (laughs) All right, up next is Lily D. D Thomas. Okay, all right, on a lighter note, um, I'm going to be reading a sonnet I wrote. Um, I don't have a name for it. A fetal, feeble melody is born, 
She preaches all that passes through her mind. Into a saturated garish scorn upon her downy freckled brow is signed. Let music reverberate us again. Let it carry us inside when we sleep. Let it coax us forth and help us pretend. Our tear-rich thoughts ate ate it in its last sleep. Music enveloped, caked in my enthrall, sings, screams as we listen, but we listen. We listen to the velvet thrum, soft call. We listen to the slight, to the sigh, gentle, steady. I urge you to quiet and sense the rhythm. Precision blooming is algorithm. Up next is Lucy Gallagher. All right, up, up next is Caroline Gatlin. Uh, hi, I'm going to be reading a Sistina about Theory of Knowledge, which you may or may not know anything about. I do not know how you perceive it. It is your theory, your knowledge, your enlightenment. But surprisingly, it is the wise abyss that cracks. You move across the world with an unmoving eye, waiting for your theory to sink into the wise old owl. You must impress the owl, because he alone perceives the wonderful theory of knowledge you possess to enlighten another soul with your unmoving heart. Knowledge within is contained deep in the abyss. For it is the deep and winding abyss loves to impress the cunning owl with the unmoving thought of will to be unable to perceive it, but it is much harder to enlighten than it is to explain the knowledge behind the theory. It is that it is is the one it is that one spectacular blah blah sorry. <laughs> I have to find where I Okay. It is the one spectacular theory is the one that survives the abyss, created to enlighten others, to show Athena's owl with a way to perceive the world will no longer be unmoving. Look closely at the unmoving world with the theory that to save the world as you know to perceive, and it will fall into the abyss, cast out like the unknowledgeable owl that can change the world with a simple theory that will be enlightening. What more can you do to enlighten with the eyes unmoving to watch a sensible owl at night and the watchful theory that crowds in the abyss, ready to perceive? But the keen owl may not enlighten, for they still perceive it as a terrible theory, and the unmoving eyes will forever lie in the abyss. All right. Up next is Talia Gordon. They said rainbows were her favorite color because she had to break the rules. Just a little bit. She told them, who knows if your yellow is my purple, and said, why should one color fit in a word when everything can fit in ten letters and four syllables? She wondered why colors couldn't fit in letters, B or C or D or Z, and she would laugh and it felt like forever to fit in a single second, which is really only one letter and one syllable less, but no one really minded. When we were younger, we had all about Hogwarts and Harry and Voldemort and all the rest, but she said Luna Lovegood was the best, and no one dared argue, because she was someone so untouchable, it was catastrophic in the end. She loved stars in the sky, etched in glass, and ingrained on wide world paper in my purple pen, at least until she got, bought one of the color-changing ones with the little tabs on the side that changed the ink. 
She said it was important because someday she would be declared queen of the rainbows and all would be well. And we would all nod our heads in utter disbelief and she would skip off with the silliest grin on her face. She left pencils and fancy picture frames and said cupcakes were so colorful no one could be sad when eating one. When she bought a box for her birthday, bright pink frosting with orange polka dots, she ate seven and we spent the rest of the day running from her surprise hugs because we were sure she'd kill us someday. She loved poppies and wore one each remembrances day, though she wasn't quite sure why. It just seemed important, and she never passed up anything important. She always said curtains should be decorated with flowers because our windows are doorways to the outside and shouldn't and should be revered as much. Still, no one questioned her because she was herself, and no one minded her antics, no matter how hard they tried. She was pretty in an eccentric sort of way, a study in red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. With wide, with wispy blonde hair and eyes that shone wide and curious in her face. But it didn't really matter what she looked like because she was the little rainbow girl, our little rainbow darling, and she wouldn't have it any other way. Up next is Katie Henderson. She's not here either? Oh, all right. Up next is Mara uh, Harriet. Is she not here either? No, there you are. Okay. Um, so this is just a short story I wrote. Dissevered, a friendship longing to be rekindled, a pair of estranged sisters reunited at last. Families broken apart coming together again. Loss and tragedy, the burden of guilt, all bringing them closer. If only, if only Alexander could be so fortunate as them. But it is too late now. With the creamy white envelope in hand, her feet padding down the ruddy cobblestone path, she understands the choice she has made, and she accepts it. A gentle drizzle begins, and she is grateful for the flowered balconies hanging overhead. It is not far now. In a few minutes more down the narrow path, she has reached the little cafe where she is to meet her next client. Tightening her long gray jacket around herself, she walks briskly across the street and proceeds to duck into the entrance. A little bell chimes upon her arrival, and a girl in the booth near the front looks up quickly. Their eyes meet, and the girl gives a brief nod of recognition. Alexander lowers her hat to shade her eyes before walking toward her and slipping into the booth. The girl before her has the widest blue eyes Alexander has ever seen in her life, and brass-colored hair falling just beyond her shoulders. Her skin is the same creamy white of the envelope, and her lips are perfectly tinted with orchid pink. The sun hat atop her head is a deep burgundy, or perhaps a light champagne. She is a rose, innocent and pure. Did you bring it? The rose asks in a tremulous whisper, leaning forward. Alexander nods, sliding it onto the table. From your brother, Alexandra explains, her face expressionless. Yes, the girl affirms softly as she stares at it. She traces the seal on the letter with a fingernail, drawing it tentatively closer to herself. Thank you, she pauses. I am Emily also. Alexandra smiles, her dark eyes twinkling under the brim of her hat. I know. Emily is not surprised. Instead, she reaches to pry open the seal of the letter. Alexandra quickly cuts her off. No, no, dear, not here, she says, giving her a pointed look. 
Emily swallows, reaching for it once more and holding it between slender fingers. Go now, where they won't see you. Thank you again, Alexandra. This means more to me than you could know, she says. Alexandra smiles materially, mysteriously. Of course, dear. Emily returns it with a smile of her own, sliding quietly out of the booth. She nods faintly before exiting the cafe. The rain has increased steadily since when Alexander had come to meet her, and Emily feels thankful for the short distance to Munich Central Train Station. As soon as she arrives, she cannot resist the temptation any longer. She tears hungrily into the envelope. Warily, her baby blue eyes scan the words scrawled upon the rough parchment, growing wider each second. No, she whispers, head snapping upwards. This wasn't possible. The world seemed dizzyingly vague before her, a mere reflection of truth. She had to get to the other side of the station. Sorry. She had to get to the other side of the station. She had to find her brother. William, she calls, to no one in particular. And then she is running. Running with such motivation that everything but her brother's face behind prison bars is a blur. No, he is over there. Emily knows it. In a frantic attempt to see over the mob of people, she leans just a little farther so that she is only an inch or two over the tracks. The letter. In a moment, it is ripped from her grasp by the wind. It is suspended in the air for it is suspended in the air over the tracks, twirling twirling and fluttering ever closer. Emily, panicked and blinded by the need for her brother's words, kneels down to reach the paper. It is an impulse, and in her extreme desperation to retrieve it, she is oblivious to everything around her, even the shouts and the sharp squealing of brakes. She does not see the train. Up next is Ellen Huggins. Hi. This is just a short horror story I wrote. Okay. Maria hated going to her grandmother's house for the summer. Granny smelled like old milk and never wanted to do anything from the 21st century. She had been going there for three years now, ever since the divorce. As her mom dropped her off and blew kisses as she drove away, much to Maria's disgust, she heard a screech from inside the house. Maria rushed inside the ancient home, wondering what was the matter. Granny? She yelled as she moved through the house. Yes, Maria, dear? Maria ran to Granny's voice. It It led her to the parlor where her grandmother smiled sweetly while drinking her tea. Maria, darling, when did you arrive? I heard, Maria said breathlessly, a voice, a scream. Granny's wrinkled eyes widened and went back to normal. No scream, I heard. I mean, I heard no scream. Granny looked terrified of something. Maria looked around the parlor. Old shelves laced everywhere. Dolls lined the walls. She looked at Granny. Her petrified eyes jarred unknowingly to the wall behind Maria. She whipped around. Next to the door was a large crack. Maria stared intensely at it with her icy blue eyes. She took a step towards it. My dear, can you help me finish the tea? It's too much for me. Maria took two more steps. She was almost touching it now. Maria! Granny's voice was angry. Maria peeked through the crack, seeing only darkness. She put her fingers to it. Maria, don't you dare! Maria pulled on the crack with all her might, and a bloody Mrs. Willis, Granny's neighbor, fell out on top of her. (laughs) She screamed, and she pushed the corpse off. Granny, why? Granny smiled sweetly. She deserved to die. Her biscuits are terrible. (laughs) Up 
next is Georgia Ray. Okay. Mine is a hermit crab essay, and it's called The Life of Novels. Magic Treehouse. The first novel I ever read was a Magic Treehouse book. I have no idea which one, but I do remember the day I picked it out like it was yesterday. The teacher had been observing my reading and had decided that I was ready to graduate to novels. I was the first in my class, the first to be led over to that coveted shelf in my first grade class. It was full of novels and possibility. I loved reading from then on. When I broke my arm and had to stay home for a few days, I didn't watch TV as I normally did. No, I read. The Magic Treehouse led me on to a journey of imagination and sparked my interest in reading along with school. Harry Potter. Second grade brought to me the magical and fantastic world of Harry Potter. My dad read it to me at first, but I would always read over his shoulder and stop him if he missed even one word. My dad would talk in different voices for the different characters, and I loved it. I loved Harry Potter. I still do. And it makes me infinitely sad when someone says, it's overrated, or the book will be bad because the movies were hard to follow. I'm connected to Harry Potter because it helped me in second and third grade start conversations with my classmates I didn't really know. It helped me become less shy. The Sisters Grimm. The book of fourth grade. The book for which I would miss hanging out with friends and even some Spanish homework to read. The book that is too easy for me now, but I still read whenever a new one comes out. In the fourth grade, I disliked my teacher. She gave us projects that were not, were not thought out and really hard tests. Sometimes there would be material on there that she hadn't even taught us. As I look back, she did have one good project. I got to do a book report on the sister's gram. The Book Thief. A book of change, longing, sadness, and fear. The book was not only my favorite because it was good, which it is, but because it represented me and what I was going through. I felt different because I was leaving my current school and no one else was. I longed to have friends again after a disagreement with a particularly influential girl in my class. But most of all, I was sad that I was left out. I was lonely. There were all feelings of the main character in the book experience, just in different circumstances. I related to her. I understood her, and I almost felt like I knew her. The Hunger Games. Sixth grade brought with it both a new interest in books and a new beginning. I enrolled at Hill Middle School and met all kinds of new people, some of which are now my closest friends. The Hunger Games was the book of that year, the book everyone was talking about. It was the book that everyone at my new school had read, but no one at my old school had. It signified me officially leaving behind my old school and joining Hill. The Hunger Games excited my mind, and I even went to a back classroom one day while we were watching a movie to just read. In addition, The Hunger Games made me feel stronger, empowered. Pretty Little Liars. Pretty Little Liars is a series filled with gossip, secrets, and lies. A book that made me feel better no matter what happened. If I had so much schoolwork I just couldn't handle it, or if I was just upset about some, what somebody said to somebody else, I would do, read Pretty Little Liars. I would realize that my life's problems were silly and petty compared to what they were going through. Pretty Little Liars was also a fun read, a book I couldn't put down. Now, I have great friends and have read great books, so I can't wait to start my eighth grade year and see what it has in store. Up next is Ayana Spear. This is a short story that is untitled. 
I watched him sink slowly beneath the surface. He was trying to tread water, but he had never learned how to swim. Neither of us had. I tried to reach out and help him, but knew there was no hope. Once the ocean wants to take you, you have about the same chance of surviving as my mother has of coming back from the dead. I wanted to help him, really, I did, but I knew he'd never forgive me if I risked my life for his. I heard a strangled, water-filled no before he slipped beneath the surface. I fell to my knees onto the whole cold, hard deck. I was sobbing, tasting that taste I had hoped I would never have to taste again. The taste of sadness. Sadness has a bitter taste, sour and rotten. Sadness is the color of the clouds just before it rains. No, I whisper through my sobs, my voice muffled by my hands. Why him, I say, my voice breaking. I wasn't expecting anybody to answer me. After all, we had been alone on the boat, but someone did. Because it is his will. I turned, startled, and saw a man that reminded me of every trickster, thief, and mischievous jerk I had ever had the misfortune to meet. He had short coal black hair, an upturned nose, a mischievous smile that never left his mouth, and crooked eyebrows. He had chocolate brown eyes that seemed amused, even though there was nothing amusing about the situation. Who are you? Where did you come from? I whisper, still crying and kneeling. I am everyone, and I come from everywhere. He smiled slightly, enjoying his joke, no doubt. Fine, don't tell me. Why are you here? I asked, my tears starting to dry up. I'm afraid I can't tell you that. At least he had the nerve to look apologetic. What did you say first? He sighed. You said, why him? And I answered, because it is his will. I glared at him, my sadness dissipating into anger. Don't pull all that God crap on me. Now can you leave so I can mourn my brother in peace? Up next is Lucy Gallagher. Um, an unhappy ending, yeah, an unhappy ending in the cafe. There I sat in the cafe. There I sat the way I did so often on the patio in the cafe, my feet resting on the chair next to me as I talked to the boy who I so often spoke to, slowly sipping a latte. Although today I seem to be noticing everything, from the peach-colored tablecloths cloths, to the man in the corner sitting in a cloud of cigar smoke. Even the coaster under my drink that seemed to be slightly askew. Even though it bothered me, I did not fix it. As the colors of the sky went from light blue to a thousand different shades of orange, and the conversation went from why he liked her to why I liked mint chocolate chip ice cream, I knew it was time to take the long bus ride home. After a long goodbye that wasn't really a goodbye, but another conversation, I got away and walked to the bus stop. As the bus came, my thoughts of unfinished math and the essay I didn't bother to finish in class, yeah, the old man sitting on the bench stood up to ask me the time. I seemed to notice everything about him, from the freckle just above his eyebrow to the purple scar on his neck. He wasn't in any way enthralling, yet he seemed important. Asking the time became a conversation. Every word he said didn't quite matter because all I could think about was the scar. Where had he gotten it, I wondered. And when I realized I had been staring at it for quite some time, he asked me if it was distracting me in a threatening tone. I unsuredly answered. And because, because his tone was uh, forewarning, I answered no and turned the other way. Calmly, I stood there. It masked my discomfort, a discomfort that I, that, uh, a discomfort that went to hoping that my last words would not be no. 
would not be the last, yeah. Uh, as the man next to me went from standing there to jerking me against the metal wall that encased the bus stop, I felt a liquid sliding down my, uh, yeah, sliding down the side of my face, and the taste, um, and the weirdly coppery taste of blood on my tongue. I spit it out and turned, turned around, ready to face him. But as quickly as I turned around, and probably. With all his might, he pushed me into the street next to us. My scars don't define me, he screamed as I stood up, looked to the left, and saw the bright lights of a truck. All right. Up next is Emily Hill. It's still short. <laughs> I'm a freak. It's okay. Um, this is a poem called The Sovereignty of the Loop. We found him in an alleyway near 53rd and 3rd, Paul Mall smoke circling like Barishnikov around golden streetlight halo. We found him, you, decked in moth-bitten Turkish carpet, blood-stained too old to be yours. You smiled at me, but then you smile at everyone. We found you near 53rd and 3rd, rusted hair in knots, skin pulled tight across sharp cheekbones. They, we once called you beautiful. We, I found you in an alleyway, and this, this vast urban ruin, once your kingdom, track lines to be proud of, for you have royalty in your veins, but all men dream of hierarchy. They, they found you at the corner of 53rd and 3rd, Paul Mall smoke circling around red-haired majesty, and after years spent worshipping on their knees, they, they crowned you in bullets. Up next is Zoe Knight. This piece is titled Sculpture. The village, abandoned now, lies half sunken underwater from the rains that converse with reflections of the sun. The waters are deep and shadowed, slow moving. They've claimed another village is a swamp. Clouds slip in again with thundering beats. Dragonflies dance over dark waters. Are any of these flowers graves? Up next is Lillian Legrun. Oh, that's not going to work. Okay. Okay, I'm doing a hermit crab essay. A couple of people have done it. They're not actually about hermit crabs, just so you know. Okay, mine's called Italy. It was a long, sterling silver chain with red pieces of glass every half inch. 
It was a Christmas gift. I'll never know if he picked it out or his mother. Either way, it was perfect. He got it in Italy. I always imagined in a small store shoved between tons of others, but I could be wrong. It could have been from a popular shop in a mall complex on a rack with 15 others just like it, all overpriced and made in China. Another thing I'll never know. After I got the necklace, I wore it for weeks, never putting on any other jewelry, thinking it would take away from this incredible thing. It was the same way with that t-shirt you got me when I didn't go to the concert of his favorite band, and yet he still got it for me. When you gave it to me in front of all our peers, it was perfectly colored, never worn, and a bit too tight. When you got it back, it was worn out, faded, stretched, and had a small stain on the bottom right-hand corner from where I spilt spaghetti on it in the cafeteria. You laughed and told me I looked fine. It was my favorite shirt that the band sold. I never knew why you picked that particular one, or maybe you just knew me that well. With the necklace and the shirt came a small scooter on a plastic black platform. The only part of the scooter that moved was the handlebars, so we could control where we would go. We used to talk about what we would do when we were older. You told me you would own a Porsche, and I giggled in doubt. You decided that you would be a car salesman, but we could never find a right job for me. Even as I think of it now, nothing sounds just right. We had decided we'd have one boy named Samuel, with your middle name and my last. We decided his every feature, from him having my freckles to your nose, and how we would raise him. Do you remember him? You got me this scooter as a promise that one day you'd get me a real one. I wonder if you ever think about that promise now, or that little green scooter. I used to look at that scooter every day and think of you, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. The shirt and the necklace were meaningful, but still innocent. The little plastic scooter, though, I saw that as our future. Maybe that's why I gave it back to you at the end. With it, I gave you that necklace that I love so much bundled in the shirt. But what you never knew is that when I broke the necklace, I kept a piece, and I still have it. Up next is Riley O'Connell. Okay, so I kind of changed what I was going to be doing like five minutes ago. Um, and it's a hermit crab essay. It's actually just like bits and pieces of it because it was really long. But the, the shell is um, Songs by the Fray, and I titled it Afraid. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Over my head. As a five-year-old, I could play football better than one may think. Oh, and it's written in the point of view of me when I was five. Um, I could play football better than one may think. I was quite proud of the statement, you play ball like a girl. Kyle, who's my brother, didn't have any interest ever in playing football, though my father was the star quarterback in his younger days. So when Mom told the three of us troublemakers to get our asses out of the house and breathe some fresh air for Christ's sake... We'd settle for playing football out in the backyard. Mostly, playing football to us meant standing in an awkward triangle shape and casually throwing a football back and forth until Mom peered out the window in the kitchen. And then we'd change what we were doing and start calling plays and making tackles and making easy touchdowns. Dad repeatedly told me I had the best spiral. I took it as a sure sign that I was meant to be the first female and person of kindergarten age in the NFL Kyle wasn't throwing well at all. He wouldn't reach both arms up to catch the ball. Did he not want to play anymore? Why was he being such a bad sport? How to save a life? I can't lift my arm, he said. So my parents took him to see a doctor just in case, but I wasn't allowed to come. So for a few days, I switched back and forth between staying with my friend Brooke and my aunt. 
until a few weeks later when we up and left for a sudden trip to California. Staying with my aunt, uncle, and cousin Jack was how I spent my time over that 10-day vacation, while mom, dad, and mama took Kyle to see a doctor in Sacramento who could help him. I found it pointless. There was nothing to fix about my brother. He was perfect. And that's what I kept telling myself throughout the entire vacation until we returned to Colorado and my parents sat me down and said that from now on I could come to Kyle's doctor's appointments with the family. His next appointment was in a few days with the father of one of Kyle's classmates. He told some really funny jokes, so I tagged along. Wait, I shouted when we pulled into the parking lot, startling my entire family. Mommy, we can't park here. She asked why not, sounding slightly concerned. I thought it was quite obvious, but I told her any, anyways. Well, that sign says only Rocky Mountain cancer patients can park here. And Kyle doesn't have... Wait, why was Mommy crying? I can barely say. Um, as she always did, Kyle's friend Garrett's mom came over with some random things in a bag. Today it was chocolate Cold Stone gift cards, glow sticks, some flowers, and two blue keyboards. She gave me the keyboards and told me to give one to Kyle. Uh, I couldn't understand what he was trying to say after I gave it to him, so I sat real quiet and listened. What are you trying to say, Kyle? He tried to speak, but no words came out, only frustrated tears. Mom, why can't he talk? She blamed it on the medication, which seemed to be doing more bad than good. Why did he have to take the medication if it wasn't making him better? Kyle made some sort of throaty noise like he was trying to say my name. When I looked over, I saw him typing away on the keyboard, his fingers weighing down heavily on the keys. And then he turned it around so I could read his message. I love you, Riley. Without reason. Here came Mrs. Cook again with her bag. But why was she here so late today? She doesn't stop to say anything to me before making her way into the kitchen, speaking in a hush to my grandma. Why couldn't I hear their conversation? And why were they crying? Adults cry a lot, I realized. I don't think I want to become one. We build, then we break. After I asked probably a thousand times, they finally let me bring the Legos with me to the hospital. Each time I tried to explain to them that Kai would want me to would want to build stuff with me once he got out of his doctor's appointment, they started crying again. And every time I asked why they were crying, they cried some more. Mrs. Cook promised to buy me some cold stone if I came to the hospital tonight, so I agreed, even though I'd missed the rest of the new SpongeBob episode. She said Kyle really wanted me to be there, so I decided I'd tell him all about the show. But when I got to his room, he was hooked up to a bunch of tubes and needles. It looked uncomfortable. The nurse told me I only had a few minutes, which I found awfully rude. Why was she timing me? When Kyle saw me, he started crying. Why was everyone crying? I told him not to, but he could hardly talk through the tears. Damn medication. He limply patted the side of the bed beside him, so I crawled in next to him, prepared to tell him about the day's events, but he wouldn't let me as he held me as close as possible and kissed my forehead. I love you, Riley, he said. I told him I loved him too, and he smiled crookedly and then fell asleep. Where the story ends, once upon a time, there was a prince named Kyle and a princess named Riley. They did everything together because they loved each other very much. 
One day, a doctor told the prince that he had a bump on his brain. The peasants didn't understand, and some of them made fun of him. But Kyle didn't care. He smiled through it all, up until his final moments before being crowned a guardian angel. His sister, the princess, wrote and told stories about him for the rest of her life, hoping that someday the whole kingdom, maybe even the whole world, could hear about the prince's courage, perseverance, and love. That is where the story ends. But really, it is only the beginning. Up next is Hannah Wieger. Oh man, I have to go after that. <laughs> um, okay, this is called My Rose. We used to tan in your mother's garden when it was her day to work the eight-hour shift at the J.C. Penney's two blocks past City Park. Your mom loved the backyard like she loved you, strong and fierce and protective. But once a week, we would spend the day lying on old tattered blankets spread over moss patches that were scattered throughout the white lilies. We felt like we were lying in soft snow, but warm to the bone, our faces freshly flushed, our fingers barely touching, our mouths barely moving in whispers. Your mother never caught us, but the sunburns on your nose revealed our deepest secrets, and you stayed inside for two days, swathing lotion on your peeling face. Your mother took a shift off to make time for the lecture you received. Those two days were agony for me because I wanted to kiss your cheeks and remind you that you need not fret about your sunburn. You are beautiful, and you are my rose. Next up is Joanne uh, Boditis. This is a piece called The Story of Two Sisters. She pulls me into a tight hug. The IV needle digs in just a little more. I'm so glad you're back. My laugh is tinged with shock and embarrassment. Regina, you know I can fend for myself. Concern sets in her dark eyes. You don't realize that you were shot, do you? You nearly died. This is the story of two sisters of warm summers and blinding suns, of nights spent curled on the couch with Harry Potter and bad rom-coms aired on TV, of painted fingers rested on Ouija boards. This is of blinding ER lights, of me curled up in her arms, helplessly bleeding, of latex hands pressing on me, trying to bring me back to life. It started with a picture. Regina had her eyes cut out. October 19th, noon, four years. Love you. Funny thing was, it was always, oh, sorry. We were scared at first. We wanted to tell someone, be safe. October 19th, noon, four years, 
you can't hide. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Funny thing was, it was always her. Always Regina, never me. At 14, I couldn't comprehend why. I still can't. The message always changed. You're beautiful, just better looking in blood. Three years, baby. Be ready. Two years. Have fun at school. One year. Soon you'll be mine. It was frightening. Dare I say it? Even thrilling. Despite the ever more explicit the nose became. On a crisp late morning, we walked out of what we called our diner to a gunshot. I fell in the parking lot, purse flying off my arm, crashing into my sister. He got the wrong one. I, 18-year-old Victoria Matisse, took the bullet with her name on it. I looked up at her dark eyes, smiling as I felt myself fading, fading away. Take care of mom and dad. Black, and then white. An IV, a bag hanging marked A positive. My sister jumping up to greet me. Mom crying, a nurse gasping, a doctor yelling, miracle in room 13, laced tastefully with profanity. You didn't tell, did you? Regina hangs her head. I'm so sorry, Tori. This is the story of two sisters trapping themselves in four years of fear. Up next is Ailey Spree. Okay, this is um, a Sestina I wrote called Candy Lies. It was the soap that sent her over the edge. It melted in her hands, chocolate, and dripped away. Living in a candy world was not easy on her heart, but it had been bewitched by his dreams of sugar and by his candy-making hands. He was so clever, weaving her into his web deftly, hands quickly working to ensnare her, pushing her over the edge to her doom. He had encased her heart in sugar, so it was fragile and frozen in a chocolate world. His own heavily guarded heart made no room for her, a thing not made of candy. It was her fault, the way she let herself be entranced by candy pictures, spun out of colored sugar by his hands. Now she was broken, her sugar heart shattered, fallen over the edge because she now knew that love did not exist in chocolate dreams. Only she could free herself from her own prison of sugar. She returned to her bedroom, sugar tears tracing slowly down her face. A piece of candy and a note sat on the end of her bed, words scribbled in chocolate ink by his lying hands. She ignored it, the thing that would trap her under the edge where there was no return, no healing for her broken heart. She packed carefully, picking up each shattered piece of her heart and sealing it away, throwing out the sculptures made of sugar, the lies. She pushed the note off the edge of the bed and kicked it. No more candy nightmares masquerading as her life. No dripping hands, dripping melted chocolate. She shuddered and glanced down at her hands. The brown stain of chocolate was still there somehow. Stains on her hands and stains on her shattered heart, which would not fade. She rubbed her hands and then her head, pushing out the images of a sugar life, 
one that she had never really wanted. She tossed her candy dream onto the floor and picked herself up off the edge, up off of a cliff of lies, of a broken heart, sugar that had left her scarred and her hands broken and covered in chocolate. She picked herself up off the edge of false candy promises and left. Up next is Morgan Sutton. Um, this is called Fate Came as Rain, and it's a Sestina. With each stroke, her brush did crumble, Stonehenge falling on end. With each note, their voices did crack, turning a sad song desperate. With each word, his work did collapse, plot turning sour in his mind. Reds and blacks on paper and in mind drew a placid face, inches from the crumble. She could paint, she could paint the beauty in a collapse, yet in the face of her own, she only prayed for it to end with an echoing plea of desperation. She was breathing into the final crack. The tile on their floor was cracked, and Omen sought to remind. They sang only in times of desperation, when all their souls were torn and crumbled, and feared to have found an end that closed in on the collapse. And when the final character collapsed and fell into death's crack, the author sat back and wondered if he'd be next to end. How much damage could evolve in his mind He'd made his whole city crumble. So would karma run him up with pitiful desperation? Fate came as rain that pounded the pavement desperately. It was a cold impact that made it all collapse and fall into vulnerability's palm, crumbled. Reality punctured depression with a crack and messed with every mind, freeing constraints and crossing the bend. She'd woken when the rain was at end and painted the night, free of all things desperate. A howl through the rain cleared their minds, and they sang a song of joy, free of all collapsing. He'd felt the, he'd felt the thunder crack and wrote his breakthrough, free of all crumbling. Though strong, the call had been desperate, a howling headache that sent the mind to collapse and rebirth once more to seal the crack and sweep the crumble. Up next is, is Zach Stevens. Okay, so I am going to be reading a short story I wrote called Demonic. There is a lone figure standing in the middle of the street, hands on the hilt. Uh, uh, actually, first, I, sh I should say that great steel is a kind of great steel. There, there was a lone figure standing in the middle of the street, hands on the hilts of his dual great steel blades. The entire thing was a setup. I knew that any movement I made would trigger his reflexes. Hunters were infamous for not letting anyone go, even back to the underworld. They had enchanted blades made of a certain kind of tin called celestial tin. Any nick from his blades, no matter how tiny, would probably spell, spell my doom. After what seemed like hours, but I knew was only around 30 seconds, the hunter cleared his throat and spoke. I'm doing what's right for this realm. He moved a couple feet forward. What's right? I echoed. 
picking, picking the last victim's remains off my claws. You think that light destroying darkness is right? Ha! Huh. We have to coexist to make a balanced universe. All of us. He stopped in his tracks. What do you know about balance? Your, your being is a destruction. Well, I, we, both know that the underworld is a realm of pure darkness. I continued stalling. And your universe is light gray and average morality with a few points of light. Without demons balancing out your presence, the universe will be tilted significantly more towards light. And I was interrupted by his mocking laughter at my ideas. You think that's a bad thing? I knew it! You have at least the flaw of thinking that light is so terrible for the universe when all you do is destroy worlds by sending them to the underworld. And yet you still have the nerve to think light is a bad thing? All this while, I had been expecting his blades. They were great steel, not celestial tin. Well, he shouted, clearly amused at my apparent failure. You gonna keep debating about the universe's morality, or can we both agree that I beat you? I calmly took a step forward. No. Go ahead, I'm listening, he smiled. No, I took another step forward. You didn't beat me. Another. <laughs> he took a deep breath. I took a step forward. What do you mean? You, you didn't respond. I, I, I won the debate. I'm not talking about the debate. Again, I took a step forward. I'm talking about your original intent. Another. My original intent? I was three steps away. You mean... I dashed forward before he could ready his blades. I, he raised his great steel bracers in defense of his face. In response, I, I shifted my charge to aiming my kneecap in his cod beast. The armor there crumpled under my momentum, and the hunter's eyes rolled back into his head. He doubled over, and I took advantage of the moment to, gra to grab the hilts of his normal, non-celestial tin swords. One I pointed toward his neck, the other I threw behind me, it clattering across the, co the cobble. His face displayed fear all over it. I only then realized that there was nobody in this section of the city. Damn, I thought. I wanted the civilians to cower in fear. My thoughts were interrupted by the hunter regaining his senses and ripping the sword out of my hands. Fortunately, he cut himself in the process of grabbing the blade. He yelped in pain and dropped it, but with his momentum, it slid away from both of us. His meager attempt at saving his worthless life gone, I snapped my face back in front of his. Did you know there's a portal to the Shadow Realm inside the wall of your city? His eyes widened even more. His head shook side to side frantically, which was a human expression for no. It, it can't be, he sputtered. You're bluffing. With my claws extended and wings unfolded, I pricked the base of his neck with my first finger's claw. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, Hunter. He tried to mouth the, word, the words of a spell, probably to banish me so he could hurry to close the portal so that he could save his city, but I interrupted him by impaling my claws through his neck. The city's only hunter died almost instantly. I quickly moved out of the city once I had disposed of the body. It's not very good to be in the middle of a shadow realm attack, is it? Up next is Brianna Vandever. Okay, so this is a poem I wrote called The Desolate World. 
There's a desolate world. It never speaks, but the chest beneath its core never waits to listen before opening its thoughts. Green mistletoe hangs above the fireplace, in so longing its two lovers, who have since moved on. I wait for the sound, for voice never sleeps. Soar and sink the water. It waits for its time to once again rush noisily over the jagged rocks of your heart, to give life once again to a place that is turned all but black. Darkness cover the light, for there is no need to listen for a sound that has already left your ringing ear. My spirit shaken flame has left its candle in hope of finding a place where the sun still shines and we can laugh again. Where stone is carved into something beautiful, for here wind-blown sand is not the only thing that disrupts my soul. There is a desolate world, but maybe once again it will have a voice of its own. Up next is Miriam Vonaheim. Uh, this is a free verse poem titled To Live Without Dead Time. It was the epiphany, signaling there is so much more than this, whispering, baby, I want you living without dead time. It threw me out of orbit, my hands tearing away from my home, a microcosmic existence circling the fabled sun. My judgment now stands clear and unfettered, the cloud of ignorance has disappeared. It was the epiphany, brushing away the clutter at the edges of my eyes, saying, don't rage softly. I was bred on princess saving prince, on belly dancers at midnight, on watercolors and fairies, on questioning the virtues of fundamentalism, on she who follows her own path. It was a surge of energy to my fingertips that started it all. Ripping apart my chest, it busted out of the cocoon. I wasn't meant for the labyrinth of suburban sprawl or polishing silver. Clutter eyes reflected in the back of the spoon. I fall into the beat, and I paint the city red. The sirens are screaming, and I am yelling to all of you, live without dead time. I breathe it into your noses because God knows we have ourselves and each other and the fear that breaks us. Don't rage softly. I breathe it into the typewriter keys, into the paintbrush and the neck of the violin. Explosive microcosm. It's a tipping point. Up next is Daniel Tabor. All right. I wrote a Sistina, but uh, I misunderstood what the rules were, and so I only wrote each line with six words. So, yeah. All right. (laughs) It's titled The Picker. He went, goal in mind, pick the one to venture to Wonderland, to seek the skies of blue, He who goes, easy comes sleep, but he is filled with lust, and so his soul is flat. The man's perspective is is indeed flat, but he continues with the pick, to seek he with little lust, to send he to the wonderland, and allow him to sleep, for the the skies are greatly blue. He could not see the blue, his mind was far too flat, and so he did not sleep. The man had a flawed pick, he sent a mistake to wonderland, a mistake filled with much lust. However, he overcame the terrible lust and saw the greatly magnificent blue. He was no mistake in Wonderland, and his mind no longer flat. The man sent the right pick, and thus was able to sleep. There was more than just sleep. After he relinquished all the lust, he deeply contemplated his being pick. He then wholly saw the blue. He could not be considered flat, and he was assimilated to Wonderland. The picker had also visited Wonderland, although he could not truly sleep. 
His mind was not as flat, and he had lost much lust, but he still failed perceiving blue, for he was only the picker. He was still filled with lust, his mind still flat. He became jealous, lack of bearing blue witness in sleep. He wished to be the pick to venture to Wonderland. Uh, by the way, this last group, the order's a little messed up. So up next is Kamani Spates. <laughs> this is a poem that's called Here's Where We Lie. The unrelenting storm, a renewal after the destruction, brings darkness and terror, more terror than the wars. More terrifying than the world of wars, more destructive than the deadliest seas. Here's where we lie, waiting. Waiting for the heroine, the god of all gods, to end this endless fight between the elements and the turmoils. turmoils. The children cry, their parents unhinged, their dark clouds are rolling in. Is it time for the end, or has a new beginning arrived? Only time will tell, and tell all it will. Only as time goes on, a new attack begins. Up next is Abby Lonard. Um, so I'm assuming that you've all been watching at least some part of the Olympics. And so my poem is titled, A Poem for the Synchronized Divers, because no one ever writes them poetry. <laughs> it is an incongruous sort of beauty, jarring, placing fingers in your abdomen and braiding whatever is there to be braided. They are not underwater, but oh, how they make you drown. Oh, how they leap and twist and go end over end over end. And you think that they must be in love. St uh, they must be sewn together. How many times have they seen one another's skin and thought it their own? It is a magnetic sort of sameness, stretched out on fine syllables, thin and blue. Young brothers, bold and brassy for the panel, quiet all elsewhere. What kind of love is this that is not a love? What kind of breathing is this that we cannot help but pause? at the side of them, all sternums and ankle bones exposed by cornflower wallpapered second skin. They are flashbulb weighted, 49 frames per second pinned. No brushstrokes paint their portraits in oil and acrylic. A painter could not make them properly similar, properly the same. Let us go to the place where they were made, where they first met, and not string around their wrists so that they know that this is a love that is not a love. There is the spring, the rise and flip and fall. And oh, what stillness grasps this motion. What unpredictable symmetry, an unsettling fold, the vertical entrance, cramped hand-numbered premonitions and the meeting of them, an incomparable pairing, and the love that may not be a love, but still makes the heart beat fast. Thank you. Up next is Natalie Sider. This is a poem called Fading Tears. <laughs> Weeping willows explode the sky, willows with branches of red, leaves of white, and tears of blue that fade into stars.
Up next is Jess Greenwald. The Space Between Stars. I heard once that the lowest note to ever exist is a sound a black hole makes, and the mystery begins. What would such a sound be? A low, silken, rumbling crash, like that of a hollow, thunderous drum. Something perhaps to rival the brilliance of the surrounding stars, pulsing like beating hearts in the infinite darkness. Or maybe it's a lost echo of the incandescent supernova that produced it, its blinding light shaking the very soul of the universe, the creased, nameless corners where even time itself crumples like construction paper. Maybe it's the compilation of tinny screams of the flakes of stars, the indefinite light, the streaking comets, the universe dust, all sucked and forever trapped inside. Or perhaps, most unlikely of all, it's merely the music of the universe itself, the fiery shadows that make up the space between stars. Isabel Toby. Kissed miserable. You promised we'd build a Play-Doh life together with train tunnel eyes that speak only of flower garden pain and easy bake sorrows. But now your picket fence fingers are scraping potluck potluck pool party skin off my oil canvas back. While I bleed detergent and afternoon carpool, you sports fan whisper about amputated happiness and broken rib joys. You pledge your love with pillow soft fists and the vacancy sign soul. I pledge mine with skin lawn manicured drying on the clothesline out back so the neighbors don't hear my unfurling blisters. Our hatred used to reach innocent heights as we smiled obscenities during our romantic comedy cultivated arguments. The smoke detector sky slithered down to abuse our home, and we were butterfly kissed miserable. Now you shower me with hallmark bruised embraces and bouquets of broken china dreams. I can feel our love, lost diver, echoing through swollen soft palates as I lie splinter scraped next to you, clutching your rose thorn body, and we pretend that we are happy. Let's clap for everybody all together. Um, and if you'll just fan your neighbor, we have five minutes left. I'm just going to have all the instructors come up, um, and they're going to just talk about one student each for a minute. First is John and Marie. Do you want to do the talking? Okay, you do the talking. You're funny. Such a happy group. Yeah, these were the happy ones we read in here, so... Um, so uh, we were told at the beginning of the week that we had to look at uh, all the students and try and pick one out that was possibly the best writer, but also a good feedbacker, positive influence, all of that. So uh, kind of difficult because we got to see all the groups and all the kids, and it's kind of hard just to say, you're the best and the rest of you. Eh. So, <laughs> but we did. So <laughs> if, uh, since... 
We had the youngest group of kids. The uh, we had to narrow it down to one, and we decided to give our kind of our young writer MVP award to Cassidy Nix. And she did it with one hand. So, um, who is the next group? So, I um, to choose from the seventh and eighth graders, and they were a fabulous group. And I cannot tell you how difficult it was to choose, and I lobbied hard for 13 awards. But um, this student that I chose really impressed me with her serious when it was time to be serious, and her playfulness when it was time to be playful and her creativity when it was time to be creative, which was all the time. And um, that student is Mara um, Harriet. Mara Harriet. My MVP for the ninth and 10th grade group, uh, I really appreciate her, uh, a lot like what Kim said, uh, seriousness when it was time to be serious. Uh, but this uh, writer, I almost said camper, that was weird. This writer uh, did a really good job on being intentional on uh, encouraging the other, uh, the other kids in our group. Um, thoughtful things to say, thoughtful things to write, uh, as well as just really cool development as a writer. So my MVP award goes to Zoe Knight. Hello. So I have an award here for the 11th and 12th grade group. Um, <laughs> apparently I'm still in 11th grade. My voice is cracking. Uh, <laughs> but this award goes to a genuine poet. Uh, you might even argue a poet who doesn't know it. Um, yeah, yuck, yuck. Uh, but the award is not for her poetic prowess, rather for her workshopping abilities. Um, really incredible just the way um, that Jess Greenwald gave such thoughtful and thorough and incisive feedback. So it was just amazing to watch. So. so that's it. Thank you so much for braving the heat and for coming and for supporting your young writers' parents. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you Thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.